dive in, I just wanted to do a bit of trivia. I wanted to find out what you guys know about the Reformation already. So it's going to be a bit of a history lesson. I'm sorry, Abby and Isaac, because you're out of school for the weekend and now we're bringing you back again, making you learn some more. He loves it. He loves a bit of history. Well, what, what do people know about the Reformation? Put your hands up if you can tell me a fact about the Reformation. Henry VIII. Henry VIII. Great, okay. So Henry VIII. Dissolution of the monasteries. Okay, yeah, good. Luther, Martin Luther, yeah. Bible into English, yes. Translation of the Bible into English. And what, what, what language was it in before it was translated into English? Do you know? Latin, yeah, that's right. Anybody else? Pardon? Wittenberg, yes, the place where Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the church door. So we know little bits and bobs about the Reformation, and the reason why we're focusing on it today is that yesterday, Saturday, the 31st of October, was the 503rd anniversary of that date when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg. Um, And so... That's what we're remembering today is Reformation. It's a celebration of what God did through people like Martin Luther. And uh, it's something that, to be honest, I think has kind of passed out of memory for a lot of the church here in the West. It isn't something we know a great deal about. In fact, you're more likely to learn about the Reformation in a history lesson in school than you are in a church, which is very interesting, isn't it? Uh, In fact, when me and Bex were talking about the Reformation, she knew a lot more about it uh, than I did originally um, from a political perspective and and what it did to the monarchy here in the UK, what it did uh, to the uh, state of Germany and the state of England as it was at the time and what happened after that through Henry VIII and through the uh, succession of the monarchy. So it's it's a subject that, to be honest, we don't really touch on a great deal in church, but I think more's the pity. I think it's a fantastic subject to be focusing on. So we're going to do that today. It's going to be a bit of a journey um, historically back into the depths of time and learning about the beginnings of the church of Jesus Christ and how we've ended up here. So it's going to be a potted history, bit of a history lesson. Sorry, Isaac and Abby, to bring you back into school on a Sunday. Um, but hopefully we'll, we'll leave the building today and leave the live stream um, knowing a little bit more about our heritage and about what God has done through uh, the Reformation. So we're going to be in these verses today, which is the 16th and 17th verse of the first chapter of Romans which reads like this in the New International Version. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in it, the gospel of righteousness, sorry, I'll repeat that. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So, let's get in our virtual time machine. Let's get in our virtual time machine. Does anybody like Back to the Future growing up as a, as a, as a young... I, I just loved Back to the Future. So, uh, we're going to get in our virtual DeLorean right now. And we're going to head back to the 31st of October, 1517. And we're going to be heading to Germany... Uh, to a place called Wittenberg. And on this day, there was a young Augustinian monk. It's a very strict order uh, of which Martin Luther was a part. He was a monk and he served as an Augustinian. He was also a lecturer at the University of Wittenberg. He was teaching theology. And on this day, this young man nailed a document to the door of the castle church there in Wittenberg. You can go there today. Uh, In fact, they have a big service every Sunday on this date celebrating that event. Martin Luther strode up to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg and he nailed a document that he'd written 
on the door. Nowadays, we know that document to be called what? Do you know what it's called? I think I've mentioned it once already. The 95 Theses, very close. So the 95 Theses, we know that as the famous document that Martin Luther nailed to the church door. Now, what's worth mentioning is that when we look back at moments in history with hindsight, sometimes we romanticize them, don't we? You know, even in your own life, when you look back at moments in your life, things that you've done, things that you've been involved in, there's almost kind of a romantic memory uh, thing that goes on. Like, if you think, Isaac, about the goals you score in school, or Dean, I can still, this is pretty um, embarrassing, but I can still remember goals that I scored in junior school, right? And there's a kind of like a purple haze to them. They were better than they probably actually were, but I can still remember. I remember scoring a diving volley on St. Jude's Junior School playing fields. The ball came in over my right-hand shoulder. I stuck out a boot and in it went. I still remember it. Um, was it as fantastic as it lives on in my memory? Probably not, um, but it felt fantastic at the time. But the point being is that sometimes with hindsight, we can look back at things and we can almost add a little bit of excess kind of pomp to them, can't we? Now, the point I'm making here is, did Martin Luther know on that morning that he was about to change the world? No. No, he didn't. The 95 Theses that he'd written were more of a theological document. He was just wanting to get into a bit of a debate with some other monks and other Catholic leaders and maybe lecturers about some theological points. He wasn't looking to change the world. In fact, if you've watched um, the documentary that I linked in the WhatsApp group the other day, I think about Luther, um, there's an analogy which is uh, used by the son of Karl Barth, who was a theologian, another German theologian. And he says that the, the nailing of the 95 Theses to the church door, which starts the Reformation, he said Luther was kind of an unwitting uh, vessel in the beginning of the Reformation. It's almost like this, like he stumbled up to the top of the church bell tower and as he got to the top he tripped and fell and tried to grab something to steady himself and it happened to be the bell ringer and bam the ringing of that bell wakes the whole of Europe up that's effectively what happened he wrote the 95 theses not in German so that the commoner could read it but in Latin and in those days the only people that could have read that language were your priests your monks your clergy, your laity, the educated types. It wasn't something there for the commoner to read. But God had other plans. Isn't that always the case in life? You can do things in life sometimes that seem so insignificant to you. You can write something and think, you can pour your life and soul into something, a project maybe, and it gets very little airtime. I've done that time and time again. I'm sure that many of you can appreciate that. But God can touch things that on the surface are ordinary and make them extraordinary. He can use things uh, that you do that maybe to you don't seem all that important or seminal and he can transform them and he can change history with them. Isn't that amazing? So what happened was a group of German students get hold of Martin Luther's 95 Theses and they translate them into German. They translate them into German. And you know how nowadays you can literally post whatever pops up into your mind out into a, a global arena, right, on social media, and it becomes, it takes on a life of its own in moments, doesn't it? Now, what happened back in 1517 was kind of a micro version of that. You see, they just invented something called the printing press. So rather than having to painstakingly get your quill and your ink out to transcribe something by hand, suddenly you had the ability to mass produce somebody's work and send it all over the country. And that's what happened. German students got hold of this document that Martin Luther had written, translated it into German, and boom, it was all across Germany within two weeks. And within a further few months, all the way across Europe, something that Luther had never intended for a wider audience than the local lecturers and teachers in his university was suddenly uh, this topic of conversation across the continent. It even got a comment from the Pope at the time who said uh, effectively, well, you know what, hopefully this monk will drink himself back into a stupor and it will be blown over in no time. 
Uh, now, Martin Luther did like his drink. He did like a beer, but it didn't go down like that in history, praise God. <laughs> um, so the 95 Theses begins to take on a life of its own. Now, it was written, the 95 Theses, it sounds all mystery. It sounds mystical, doesn't it? What, what do we mean, 95 Theses? Well, have you ever written, perhaps, a list of things that annoy you? You ever done that privately and never shown it to anybody? I'll always remember this from one of my favorite sitcoms, Friends. Uh, there's an episode where Ross uh, writes down a list of several things that annoy him about Rachel, who he's just got together with. She discovers his terrible list and it all blows up and the rest is history. Um, but effectively, what Luther had written in the 95 Theses was 95 gripes about the Catholic Church, about their practices, about how a lot of their teachings had become sort of unbiblical. And uh, they, they were a bother to him. So he'd written this 95 Theses to spark debate within the church about these beliefs, about these practices, and whether they were biblical. Now, why should we care about all this? Why should we in the 21st century care about what an Augustinian monk nailed to a door 500 years ago? What possible relevance can those 95 points have to our lives today? And I think these are good questions to ask. Why are we dwelling on something that happened so long ago? What's it got to do with us? Well, for one, it's true to say we live in very different times, don't we? The times that Luther was living in, there were different things that they cared about. There were different things that they woke up thinking about every day. The concerns that they have quite often are not the concerns that we have today. Times have changed. For one, uh, we drink distilled tap water these days. We can safely drink water from the tap. Uh, back then, you drank beer. You drank beer. Even Isaac and Abby's age, you drank beer because it was the cleanest thing you could drink without getting sick. Imagine that. <laughs> Take us back. <laughs> Times have changed. But interestingly, some things are the same. Some things are the same. In fact, at the time of the Reformation, there was a lot of fear about the advance of Islam from the East. In fact, armies were advancing upon Eastern Europe at the time. And there was a great fear that there would be an Islamic caliphate in no time at all. These are some of the same fears that people face today, certainly after the goings-on in France in the last couple of weeks. There were also infectious diseases ravaging the continent. They didn't just have COVID-19 to deal with. They had the plague, smallpox, um, you name it. It was out there and there was no protection. Uh, in, infant death was at an extremely high rate uh, and life expectancy was way lower. So certainly, if you were living then, your own mortality was forefront in your mind in a way that it isn't today. You know, today, um, we like to think that we're invincible, don't we? We like to think that we'll live forever. We don't consider death. Back then, it was a very present reality. There were so many things out to get you. And so Luther and many of the people that lived around then had perhaps more a fear of God than we have today because they were aware that they could meet him at any moment. Now, in this culture, I think, in a sense, COVID's brought back a bit of that, hasn't it? Sometimes God will use fear of death in order to stir people's hearts and wake them up. Hey, every single one of you is going to have to face him one day. We're all going to have to give account. So things were different, certainly. But at the same time, some things haven't changed. And God's word has not changed and the study of the Reformation, I want to put this to you really clearly today. The study of the Reformation is a study in getting back to the Bible. It's a study in getting back to God's word. How many of you would like to do that more in your life? The Reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, these names, uh, they were interested in getting back to the Bible. They were interested in cutting through all of the traditions of men, 
and all of the milieu of religious teaching, wading through all of that, all of the fluff and the pomp of religion, and getting back to the true gospel. That's what these men and women were interested in during the Reformation. Now, I want to put this to you as Hope City Church because of the direction we are taking Uh, both being charismatic and spirit-filled and hungry for the gifts of prophecy and also being reformed in our faith. The more ignorant that we are as Christians of people like Martin Luther, John Calvin, Wycliffe, Jan Hus, these people, the more ignorant we are of the Reformation, the more likely that we are to be snared by the same things that brought it about in the first place. And this goes for the young as well as the more advanced in years amongst us. If we ignore what happened 500 years ago, we're far more likely to be snared by the same things that brought it about. And this is my concern as a preacher and as a Christian with much of what I see in the spirit-filled church in the West is that so few have got any interest at all in church history. And I would count myself in amongst that group just five years ago. There's so little interest in church history, and in particular the Reformation. In fact, some of the names I've mentioned today would be borderline dirty words in a lot of charismatic churches today. Doctrine. The word doctrine has become a dirty word amongst many pastors. It's taboo. We don't talk about doctrine. Why? Why don't we talk about doctrine? Why don't we preach theology in churches that's been the practice of the church for 2,000 years but when you enter into most spirit-filled churches these days I'm not saying all but by and large it's not what you get you don't get doctrine you don't talk about theology and I think part of that is driven by a fear is a fear of disagreement it's a fear of falling out and in fact Even many Protestant Christians are ashamed of the Reformation today because what they see it as is, oh, what an embarrassment. Why did those people have to stir up a big controversy and have a fight and split with the Catholic Church? You know, many Christians are ashamed of what happened, but that was never Luther's intention. It's important to say that. He didn't want to split the church. He wanted to have a Reformation within the Catholic Church. But I think that there is a a fear these days of that word doctrine, of that word theology, and certainly a fear of studying church history because we don't want to fall out. But what's happened because of our ignorance of those things is that we've settled, I believe, uh, in Western charismatic churches, we've settled for a weaker and more emotionally driven faith. We've settled for a Christianity that's, that's intellectually lightweight. It's intellectually lightweight and it's therefore it's really vulnerable. And that's why you see so many, sadly, uh, kids and young people raised in church going off to university and within a year they're no longer going to church anymore. They're no longer going to church anymore because they've been taught effectively Bible stories with a bit of emotion and a bit of encounter. Well, the sad truth is that the secular world's got a ton of encounter to throw at you, hasn't it? It's got all of the temptations of the flesh and of the devil. And it will outstrip and outdo any kind of Christian experience that you might have at a Bible week, to be honest. Unless it's backed up with a scriptural worldview. And so I think, sadly, much of the charismatic church has kind of settled for that weaker more vulnerable, uh, less intellectually fulfilling version of Christianity to our detriment. And so I'm keen to resurrect the memory of the Reformation in this church to hopefully put us in a better position as believers going forwards into the next century when no doubt there are going to be pressures like never before to abandon the Lord, especially for the younger generation. I think it's important that we prepare them for that. In fact, many well-meaning Christians have have attempted to warn me off the study of the Reformers, and particularly Reformed theology. I've heard it said many, many times to me, we follow God, not man. We follow God, not man. 
as if by learning about the Luthers and the Calvins, you're somehow following men and the traditions of men. Well, I know what they're getting at. Don't get me wrong. I know what they're saying. There's a fear that by studying theologians, that we might become more in love with the theology than we do in the Lord it's actually talking about. I understand that. That's a real thing we have to watch for. But at the same time, here's the rub. In order to follow God more closely, we inevitably have to study the work of other men and women. Because when God reveals himself, he does so through men and women. And some of these men and some of these women have shone very brightly, haven't they, in their generations and have advanced well beyond me and beyond you in terms of their study and their prayer life. For me to suggest or to think that I can ignore the works of these people who've advanced beyond me in studies, who know more about theology, who have prayed more hours than I will ever pray, it would be arrogant of me to think I can simply bypass all of that and come to the Bible with my own lenses of tradition and experience and know more than they do. So I think when we're studying the Reformation, we're not doing so to worship men. We're doing so to follow God more closely. That's what we're doing in studying these things. If we won't read the lives and the works of those that God uses, we're actually going to miss out. We're actually going to miss out on knowing more about God. Now, today we're going to finish up the next 15 minutes with a study on these two verses from Romans chapter 1. And these verses, 16 and 17, they were the breakthrough verses for Martin Luther. And I hope that by reading them 503 years later, uh, that we're going to be reinvigorated too by God's word. And I hope that we catch something today of that reformer spirit, um, of a desire to have our beliefs about God shaped by the Bible and not by our traditions or not by what others have told us about the Bible. I really hope that you catch that today, a reformer spirit, to get back to basics, to get back to the word, to acknowledge that you've got lenses on, right? Cultural lenses, traditional lenses, lenses of your church experience. And our job is to get these off and to try and view the Bible as it was originally written. So before we dive in, we're still here in our time machine in 1517. And what we're going to do is take a look around at the state of the church. And what we're going to try and do is understand how it's got here. How was the church of Martin Luther's time, how did it get there? How did it arrive at that point? To do that and to appreciate the state of the church back in the 16th century, we have got to go right back to the first century AD with the beginning of the church of Jesus Christ. The back end of the first century AD, um, the only apostle left alive is John, is John, who wrote his books, Book of Revelation, we believe in around 90, 95 AD. So he's the only one of the apostles left alive. Uh, Peter has been crucified upside down. And Paul has been beheaded outside the gates of Rome by the emperor Nero. So it's been a, a torrid time. The church has grown rapidly. It's spread right across the Roman Empire. And God is moving powerfully. But it's also been a brutal time. An absolutely Horrid time for believers in sense of they've been in danger, consistently in danger for preaching what they preach. All but one, traditionally of the apostles, is said to have gone to dreadful deaths, martyrdom. And uh, the Emperor Nero doesn't just go after the apostles and the figureheads of the church, he goes after every Christian that he can find. And we know from history uh, that he burnt Christians alive on stake posts and used them as candles in his garden. Imagine that. If he wanted to have a garden party, he wouldn't go down the garden center and pick out some nice lanterns. He would make living lanterns out of Christians. He'd feed them to the lions. He'd pour lead on them in arenas. So it's been a torrid hundred years for the early church. 
After the age of the apostles, the next leaders of the church are people called the church fathers. How many of you have heard of the church fathers? So that's in kind of 100 to 200 AD, right up to 500 AD is about the end of that era. And those who led the church from 100 AD to 200 very often were people quite closely connected to the apostles. These were men who were disciples of Peter and of Paul, men like Polycarp, uh, men like Justin Martyr, Oregon, Irenaeus, Ignatius, people like that. And they had a similar experience. Uh, they too were in constant danger for preaching what they were preaching. Um, and they spent a lot of time refuting false teachings within the church you know we've been covering a bit of that in the book of first john haven't we um we've been talking a little bit about gnosticism haven't we and this was a constant threat to them it was something that was very prevalent in that time was kind of pseudo gospels that were making their way around the roman empire and these church fathers defended the faith not physically through fighting wars but through fighting false doctrine and they too, as I say, met grisly deaths. In fact, there's a story of Polycarp, who, as an old man, he was led to the stake in front of thousands of spectators in Rome. And he was given the chance to avoid death by the uh, proconsul there in Rome. Uh, all he needed to do to avoid death was sprinkle a little bit of incense on an altar to Caesar. But Polycarp refused, and he said this, 80 and 6 years I have served him, and he's done me no injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and saviour now? Wow. They burnt him at the stake, but tradition has it that the wind blew the fire away from him. So they tried to light it again, and it didn't really take again. So in the end, a Roman soldier thrust a spear through his side. Horrific what these people would go through for Jesus. I think the point I'm trying to make through all of this is just to say that the church that we are part of today was birthed in persecution. It wasn't birthed in a time of peace. For almost 300 years, Christians had to meet and gather secretly for fear of being arrested, beaten or worse. And I think that's important to remember, isn't it, in a day like today when we can so easily feel persecuted and so easily feel attacked. And sometimes there's truth in that. Uh, by the world, uh, by the way that this, uh, this world treats us as Christians. But it's important to remember what the church was birthed in in the first place. Very, very dangerous back then to be a Christian and to stand up for Jesus. And I just want to have that same heart that Polycarp had in me that says, I'm going to be faithful to my Lord, whatever it takes. I don't know about you, but that inspires me. Now, a big change happened in 312 AD. So we're here now in the 4th century, the beginning of the 4th century. And a man called Constantine, how many of you have heard of him? He becomes emperor. And moreover, he says that he's converted to Christianity. He has all of his soldiers carry the mark of the cross on their shields and he carries the cross into battle. And there are a lot of people that actually doubt whether Constantine really did become a Christian. We don't know. But what's true is that his decision to become a Christian and to make Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire changed the course of history. It changed the course of history. When Christians had gotten used to having to meet in private, now they enjoyed the freedom of the state. It was a good thing in the sense that now they could gather together, they could do church as much as they pleased. They could discuss theology and many of the great councils that we know of, like the Nicene Creed. I think that we, did we do the apostles or the Nicene today? Are we the apostles? I think we did the Nicene last week, didn't we? That great creed came from that era. And it was because of the freedom that were afforded by Constantine. They got the chance to come together and to talk theology. So we're grateful to that time now as uh, pastors and theologians in this day that we've got that work to look back on. But I think the negative side of it was that there was a dramatic power shift that happened at the same time. Things began to look very different. Um, what effectively happened was that the Bible, the scriptures, were drawn away from the common Christian. The Bible was translated into Latin and it became law that only priests 
Only the clergy were able to read and to interpret the teachings of Scripture. And the Scriptures, the Bible, was no longer something that you or I could have at home and read uh, and interpret ourselves. It became something that was the preserve of those right up at the top. Right up at the top. We couldn't know what Scripture said without them telling us. And around this time as Rome fell and got overrun by all of these marauding armies of Goths and Visigoths and all these cool other names, uh, another power rose in its place, which was the Roman Catholic Church. And the Bishop of Rome assumed a position of special power over the whole church in the Roman Empire at the time. Uh, he was effectively viewed as the vicar of Christ, which means he was the embodiment of Jesus on earth. He represented Jesus on earth. The Christian Sabbath day, also celebrated by the Jews, which had been a Saturday, was moved to a Sunday. And as I say, the Bible was removed from the hands of the common Christian and taken up and up and up the pyramid to the very top, where only the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church was allowed to interpret the true meaning of Scripture. And from this point on, strange teachings began to enter into the church. Teachings like the worship of Mary, the veneration of Mary um, as a co-redemptrix, as they call her, with Jesus. Also the practice of confession, that one had to visit a priest and confess one's sins to the priest in order to get forgiveness. Also, the teaching of purgatory made an entrance after this point. And as baptism became, rather than faith in Jesus Christ, uh, something that you believe in your heart and declare with your mouth, baptism became the point of salvation, the entrance into the Catholic Church. And the simple sacrament of the Lord's Supper, as you broke bread last week, I think, that became the Mass. And the Mass is slightly different to the Lord's Supper in that the priest would actually believe that he was bringing down the physical body and the blood of Jesus Christ physically into that space. And by doing so, and by sharing that with believers, he was absolving them of their sins. So it really was a re-offering of Jesus every Sunday. Now, by the time of Martin Luther, things looked very different than they did in the early church. You see, what he would have been taught growing up was that when he became a Christian, when he got baptized, he was forgiven. He was made right with God at that moment of baptism. But he was also taught that from then on, the work of fulfilling his salvation was over to him. It was over to him. Every sin that he committed and every sin that any Christian committed back then, they believed that they had to then take care of that themselves, either through going to mass or through confession, penance, pilgrimage, or through paying what's known as an indulgence. Martin Luther would have grown up believing that he could have lost his salvation through committing a particular type of sin, maybe like murder or adultery. And if that happened, you had to go through the whole thing again. You had to get rebaptized. You had to do penance even um, and go through that whole rigmarole to get right with God again. This thing of indulgences as well. Let me just explain that a little bit. How many of you have heard that before? So this was the practice whereby you could visit uh, a particular priest and you could actually pay to get a certificate saying, you have been absolved of such and such a sin. You could pay for that. Rather than being repentant, particularly, you could just pay money. You could also pay money to have a, a deceased relative uh, get through purgatory quicker. And what, they, what these priests believed they were doing was taking merit from this treasury of merit that was supposedly built up by Mary, by Jesus, by all these saints. And what they believed they were doing was taking from this treasury of merit. And as you pay your money, they take some of that merit and they drop it into your spiritual account. And you therefore get forgiven of whatever sin it is that you're wanting to get forgiven of. 
So the gospel, the simple gospel, by the time of Martin Luther, has gotten hijacked. It's gotten hijacked. It's gotten turned into a message that was, to begin with, about the free grace of God. And it's been turned into something that only brings about anxiety, fear, striving. Luther believed it was up to him to seal the deal with his salvation. For Luther, God wasn't a God of love, a God of grace, of kindness. God was scary. God was demanding. God was distant, far from the picture of God the Father that Jesus revealed. So when Luther read the words of Romans 1, 16 and 17, instead of seeing the grace of God, he saw the awful and perfect wrath of God and the hopelessness of his own situation. Let me just read you a quote from Luther so you'll get this. He says this, quote, For I hated the phrase, the righteousness of God, which according to the use and custom of all the doctors, I had been taught to understand philosophically, in the sense of the formal or active righteousness by which God is just and punishes unrighteous sinners. Although I lived an irreproachable life as a monk, I felt that I was a sinner with an uneasy conscience before God, nor could I believe that I'd pleased him by the satisfaction I could offer. I did not love. No, in fact, I hated this righteous God who punished sinners. And if not with silent blasphemy, then certainly with great murmuring. I was angry with God, saying, as if it were not enough that miserable sinners should be eternally condemned by original sin, with all kinds of misfortunes laid upon them through the Old Testament law, and yet God adds sorrow to sorrow through the gospel, and even brings his righteousness and wrath to bear upon us through it. Thus I drove myself mad, with a desperate and disturbed conscience, persistently pounding upon Paul in this passage, with a parched and burning desire to know what he could mean. Isn't that incredible? End quote. Isn't it amazing? Let me just make this point. Isn't it amazing what an effect traditions can have on your understanding of the Bible? Luther wasn't a slouch. He wasn't a dunce. He was a university professor, wasn't he? He could read and write in several languages, but the plain meaning of this verse eluded him. And I want to say this to you today. This should serve as a reminder to us that we've all got lenses on when we read the Bible. We've got lenses of tradition, of what we've always been taught about the Bible. We've got lenses of our own experience that we've built up over time. And I'm not saying all these things are wrong. But we've also got lenses of culture. We live in the 21st century with its concerns and its worries and its preoccupations. We'll have been impacted by what we've heard other Christians say about the Bible. But following the example that Luther sets here, it's down to us, each individual, to do the work to get past these lenses and to the true meaning of the Bible. Now, I'm going to say personally, I always do my utmost as I can as a pastor. In study, which is very important, and in prayer to get past my own lenses and to give you the word of God as unfiltered as I can. And that's why in recent years I've taken the time to study uh, Greek, the original language of the New Testament, so that I can read the New Testament in that language, so that I could hopefully get closer to the core meaning of the text. That's exactly what Luther did. He got hold of a Greek New Testament and began to read it instead of the Latin that he'd been given. And reading in this original language, that was part of what unlocked this amazing revelation in Romans 1, 16 and 17. And in the Greek, it runs like this. It, very literally, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God into salvation to all those believing. Did you catch that? To all those believing. That's important. To the Jew first. And then to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed out of faith into faith. Just as it is written, the righteous out of faith will live. Now that's, an, that's a very literal translation straight from the Greek. Now many believe that these two verses here in Romans 1, Paul summarizes everything he's going to say. Everything he's going to say to the Romans you could pack into these two verses. 
We've got a description, haven't we, of the power and of the effect of the gospel in verse 16, followed then by an unpacking in verse 17, which tells us more about what's actually happening, what actually drives the power of the gospel and how it does what it does. We, we read this, that the gospel is the power of God. It's the power of God. Now, there are some that believe that means a godlike power, something that's very powerful. But I don't think it can be understood as that. I'm not convinced that's what it means. I believe it means it's God's own power. I'm convinced that's what it means. Now, if the gospel is God's own power in action, then who can resist it? Who can resist it? Who will overcome the power of God? Who will resist his will to save who he wants to save? No one. No one's free will is strong enough to prevent God from saving them. Amen? Salvation is of God. It is also the power of God into salvation. That's the Greek preposition there. It's the power of God into salvation. I like that imagery there. God saves us into salvation. And it's to all those believing. All those believing. Now, you, in English, it's difficult to translate this particular word from the Greek because we don't have an equivalent in the English language. Uh, the Greek is what's known as a present participle. It's pantito uh, pistonti, okay? That's a bit of a mouthful. But effectively, what that means is that there's a continual activity of believing. It's not a once-for-all action. It's something that's continually going on. And what does this mean? It means that the gospel saves all those who have believed and will continue to believe. Now, what, what's the point of me telling you that? It means this. It means that true believers, true believers, they're going to endure many doubts many doubts and many trials and attacks upon their faith. But they will keep on believing in Jesus right to the end. Is your faith being challenged? Do you experience doubts sometimes? That's all part of the normal Christian life. And it's not necessarily evidence that you're not saved. And I hear this a lot. People will say, well, I have doubts. I've got doubts. But the mark of a true Christian isn't that they never get doubts, right? It's that they overcome them. It's that they cling to Jesus even through all of their doubts and trials and challenges. And then we go on to verse 17. Now, this is the doozy, and this is where I'm going to finish. It says this, for in it... In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. We've got to ask this question, brothers and sisters. What righteousness of God is being revealed? What righteousness of God? Some have taken this to mean that the holiness of God or the perfection of God is being revealed in the gospel. Others, like Luther, have believed it to be his holiness and wrath that is being revealed. Still others think that it's a description of God's perfection and his righteousness in saving people who don't deserve to be saved. But this is where Luther really got the revelation, is when he read this verse in the Greek rather than in the Latin. You see, the Greek word used here for Righteousness is the word dikaiosune, dikaiosune. And what that means is a righteousness that is reckoned to someone. It's a judicial term. It's a term that's used in courts, right? Now, the Roman Catholic Church, interestingly, taught that God's righteousness was never just reckoned to somebody. They taught that it was infused, Right? So when you became a Christian, when you were baptized into the church, God infused his righteousness in you. Almost like, you know, when you uh, pour a glass of water and then you drop some Ribena in it and you see it kind of infusing and it looks so cool. Well, they, they thought it was like that. Like a drop of God's righteousness would go in and eventually it work its way through all of you until you begun to look righteous. And then you could know you were saved. But this word here, 
struck Luther and he thought, no, that's not it. God's righteousness is not being infused, it's being reckoned. It's a once-for-all immediate action that God's perfect, pure, perfect holiness and righteousness is reckoned to you at the moment of you putting faith in Jesus. It's a done deal. It's judicial. So he understood it like this. You could translate it as a righteousness from God. A righteousness from God is being reckoned to you. Luther said this, At last, God being merciful, as I meditated day and night on the connection of the words, namely, the righteousness of God is revealed in it. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And there I begun to understand the righteousness of God as that by which the righteous man lives, by the gift of God, namely, by faith. And this sentence, the righteousness is revealed, to refer to a passive righteousness, not our own righteousness, but his, which the merciful God justifies us through faith. From that moment, the whole face of Scripture was changed. And now, in the same degree as I'd formerly hated the word righteousness of God, even so, I did begin to love and extol it as the sweetest word of all. Thus, was this place in St. Paul to me the very gate of paradise. The very gate of paradise. And it's from faith to faith. From faith to faith. I think the NIV has the best translation here. There, there are people that will say that means, well, it's God's faith and then you build upon God's faith. There are others who say, well, the beginning of you becoming a Christian is faith. And then after that, you build on that faith. It's a life of faith. But I think it's, it's more simple than that. I think the NIV's got it right when it says a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. All Paul's wanting to get here is that this knowing God, this justification by God is by faith alone. With nothing added to it. It's all of faith. This alien righteousness is reckoned to us. Now, throughout 2,000 years of church history, people have always wanted to claim, I think, some of God's glory in salvation for themselves. Whether it be in good works that they could earn it for being a good person, or whether they thought that their own faith was what saved them. That their faith was somehow kind of a virtuous act. I've got faith and I just direct it at the right thing and boom, I'm blessed. Throughout the years, Christians have wanted to grab some of the glory that belongs to God in their salvation. What the reformers and what Luther teaches us is that God deserves all the glory in salvation. It belongs to him. It's all of him. You can't claim even your faith as being your own. We read Paul, don't we, in Ephesians saying that it's a gift of God. Even your faith in God has given you. And that's where we get this statement from on my hoodie today. Soli Deo Gloria. That means to the glory of God alone. It's one of the five solas. Anybody heard of those? The five solas of the Reformation. They were sola gratia, by grace alone. Sola fide, by faith alone. Solus Christus, in Christ alone. Sola scriptura, according to scripture alone. And soli Deo Gloria to the glory of God alone. So put together, put together in a formula. This is how you're saved, according to the reformers. Number one, we're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, with no works added. And we've got no claim on the faith that we have, even that's a gift from God. Thirdly, we're saved into Christ alone. You're treated as Christ is treated. His righteousness is your righteousness. He took all your sin and filth and mess upon himself. It's gone. And now when the Father looks at you, it's like looking on his only son. You are spotless and blameless in the eyes of the Father. You're engaged in a deep, loving relationship with the Heavenly Father. And imagine that. Imagine the love that the Father has towards the Son. Imagine that love. You are now caught up in that love. He treats you as Jesus deserves, not as you deserve. Isn't that wonderful? There's this mystical union that you have with Jesus as a Christian. 
where you engage in that deep, powerful love with God the Father. Fourth, all of this is according to Scripture alone. All of it. Scripture is what tells us who God is and how he relates with us. And then finally, all of this, all of your salvation, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. All of that miracle is to the glory of God alone. He didn't save you for you. He didn't save you to make you feel happier, to give you an easier life, to heal your body, to make you think better thoughts about yourself. He saved you for the glory of his own name. Amen. When God chose Israel, we know from scripture, it wasn't because Israel was a powerful nation. It wasn't because they had the greatest philosophers, because they'd somehow figured life out. It was because God decided to choose them for his own name. We're saved for the glory of God and the glory of God alone. Amen. All I would ask you today is, do you have that consistent faith in your heart? Is there a believing in Christ that's going on in you? Is there a clinging to him in your life? If there isn't, then there's no time like the present to change that. There's no time like the present to change that. As we head into another time of uncertainty in our nation, when we don't know, uh, truthfully, when we'll be able to meet again together, there could never be a better time than to recommit your life to Jesus today. To know him. To experience what Jesus has purchased for us. To know the Father. To know his love. I would encourage you, for those of you facing doubts, not to worry and to cast yourself on Jesus, to get into the word, to have that reformer spirit, to get through all of the junk and all the pomp of religion and of churchianity and of all of this stuff. We don't meet together so that we can sit in rows, so that we can enjoy a good service. We sit together to be built up, to be built up into a living temple, to be built up for Jesus, to become his bride, to be beautified, to be ready for our Lord, for the bridegroom. That's why we come together, isn't it? And each one of you are a part of that. We each come together to be purified as Jesus' bride. And, and I would encourage you to do that during this time of lockdown. To turn your eyes towards Jesus and to, to focus on purity and holiness. To focus on love. Specifically love to him and love to your brothers and sisters in this time. Let's finish there. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you speak to us today through history and through the study of these men and women that you've used in the Reformation. Lord God, I pray that it would be fuel on the fire of our relationship with you. I pray, Lord God, that we leave today more passionate to know your Bible and more aware of our own frailties and our own lenses when we come to it, Lord God. Help us to get past them. Help us to get past those lenses. Help us, Lord God, during this time of lockdown to open ourselves up to you in a more profound and authentic way as well, Lord God. I really pray that for our church, that this would be a season of retreating into the secret place with you retreating into that secret place and being refined in the fire of your love. I pray that in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. If anybody would like prayer or anything at all afterwards, please do come and chat to me. I'd love to pray with you. Otherwise, we're going to finish up there for today. Thanks for bearing with me. I know